Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Regency Theater. We are so excited to welcome today's guest. Lauren Weathers is one of the hosts of the Reclaiming Jane podcast and a Janeite of many talents. With a bachelor's and master's degree in English literature and a minor in film studies, Lauren spends her free time moonlighting as both a freelance and fiction writer outside of her full-time job in higher education. She has written for sites like Screen Rant and USA Today College, has a pop culture reference for almost everything, and is particularly enamored with diverse Austin adaptations. Welcome, Lauren! Thank you! I'm so excited to be here. So today, we're pulling from Pride and Prejudice. Elizabeth is traveling to Huntsford with Sir William and Mariah to visit the recently married Charlotte, and on their way, they stop over at the Gardner home in London. So this is coming from the book. On the stairs were a troop of little boys and girls whose eagerness for their cousin's appearance would not allow them to wait in the drawing room, and whose shyness, as they had not seen her for a twelve-month, prevented their coming lower. All was joy and kindness. The day passed most pleasantly away, the morning in bustle and shopping, and the evening at one of the theaters. So, Lauren, theater here in the scene is referred to as just this normal part of any given day in London. You're in London, you're hanging out, shopping, you're doing the whirlwind, you're going to go to the theater in the evening. Can you tell us a bit about the theater scene in London during this time? And maybe, you know, like, what were some of the most famous and popular theaters? Like, where where might Elizabeth have gone to the theater that evening? Yeah, absolutely. So there were a significant number of theaters in London at this point in time, which is why it was kind of just a given that you would go to the theater in the evening across all the theaters, not just in one. It wasn't as though they had the massive arenas that we would see today, but 20,000 people could be seeing a show on a given night in London. So it was a, a huge thing. And you had your your main theaters that were like your theaters royal that had the licensing and the papers to be given that kind of title. But then you also had lots of other specialized theaters and you had your smaller playhouses. So I'm sure if you were a Regency era hipster, then you probably had your favorite small theater where you could go and... <laughs> And go see your specialized dramas. But the ones that Elizabeth or other ladies of her social status probably would have gone to were the the theaters royal. So one of those was the Theater Royal Covent Garden, which is now the Royal Opera House. And so that was actually rebuilt just at the very beginning of the Regency era because it burned down. So they rebuilt it and then it reopened in 1809. That could hold about 3,000 people, and it was also known for having super talented actors. So if you wanted to see one of the actors of the day, they were probably at this theater. Then there was another one that was the Theater Royal on Drury Lane, and that also burns down in 1809. So Covent Garden reopened in 1809, and then Drury Lane burned down, but that was rebuilt three years later in 1812. And then a third Theater Royal was the one on Haymarket, and then that was relocated and then redesigned like towards the end of the Regency in 1820. But that had been an older theater that had been around since the 18th century. So those are like the main three. And then a lot of other smaller specialized places and theaters that did not have that grand title where you probably weren't going to see the the socialites of the day. Okay. Those were like the ones that were acceptable for high society to go exactly. and see and be seen. Yeah, you probably had your box, you had your, your season tickets, as it were, and that was where you went to go and mm-hmm. hang out. 
It's like partially to watch the show, but also mostly just to socialize and show off. Oh, absolutely. You're dressing to the nines. You're, it's like you said, it's like it's something where you want to see and be seen. And you were going to be seen the entire time because there are no house lights to dim. So the lights oh, are okay. on you the, the entire yeah. time. Because we as modern theater goers have like very specific expectations and etiquette that we're supposed to be following, right? So, you know, if you're going to a live performance, you get you do get dressed up, right? A little bit. Yep. You arrive early, you take your seats so that you don't get shut out. You turn off your cell phones, you're quiet, those sorts of things, right? But like what you're describing is a little bit different. So what would it have been like to attend these theaters? When Elizabeth goes, are there different expectations or behaviors for this kind of entertainment? So silence was not a thing that could be expected. I think a modern audience would be extremely irritated by people who attended theaters in the Regency era because the performances would start at a certain time, but people did not get there at the performance time necessarily. There mm. would be people in the audience, but people would roll through an hour and a half late. They would come through whenever. So you have people who are just coming into the theater at whatever point in the play. You know, you might have Juliet giving her, oh, happy dagger speech. And someone's like, hey, how are you? How have you been? <laughs> so there's no, that's lawless. You know, people are talking throughout the entire show. Like somebody's conducting business over here. Somebody else is gossiping. People are, you know, having their own side conversations. That was very different from today. You're still, you, you know, you dress up and you treat it as like as an outing, an excursion, but it's a five act play and you're probably talking through the entire thing. So it's not about going to the theater in terms of watching theater. It's going to the theater and being the performance, really. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're going to the theater and you are performing for the sake of the other people around you. And, you know, there's also lots of different classes that are mixing in the theater as well. So there's people of all social backgrounds who go, but... It's tiered in where you're sitting in the theater and also kind of how much of that performance for the people you can see. So, of course, you know, you're very wealthy or in your box seats. If you were not wealthy, but you were, you know, respectable middle class, you know, like your people of like those more genteel professions who still had to work for their money, then you're in the pit, which is a little bit of a step above the gallery, which is where everybody else was. So that's where you have like your tradesmen, your hairdressers, you know, your normal people. They're in the gallery, which is very crowded, and so there's not a lot of space to move around. So that's where, you know, all the plebeians had to be. <laughs> and then if you really wanted to show your social class, or if you wanted to prove that you had money, then you owned a box, and you could just show up there at any time. And that was definitely, one, you could see the entire theater, and everybody else could also see you. So it was very much, I'm displaying how much wealth that I have. It also meant that you weren't getting dripped on by hot candle wax, because there were no like stage lights to drip. Everything's lit by yeah. candles. It's <laughs> also why so many of those theaters burned down. Right. So right. <laughs> they had, you know, people who were employed as like candle trimmers or sometimes people would like go and snuff out the candles. But if you did it wrong or if you waited too long, then hot wax is dripping on the people in the gallery and they're probably not going to be very pleased about that. So beware falling wax. It's a rather intense yeah. experience. I, yeah, I can't imagine that that would have been any kind of environment that lets you focus on the play right. at all, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny listening to you talk about the box seats. That is something that comes up so often in historical fiction. And I'm talking about the private box seats here for the fancy people. There is frequently a conversation like, oh, we won't be attending this evening. Go ahead and use our box. Or the characters show up late, but it's not a concern because their private reserved box is waiting. I mean, that's what I want from my Regency theater going experience. And that's really the only way that you would have a reserved seat because there were no tickets, even by 
pre-internet standards, we would go to the box office and buy a ticket. That wasn't really a thing. So you could own a box and then you knew that you had a seat. But otherwise, people would like send servants to wait in line and literally sit in their seat and be a seat saver. And if you were a servant who was sent to go do that, you really hope that you're you know, that your employers come late so that you get to see the show (laughs) and then because then you've got a free seat, you know, you're hanging out. Wow. Seat savers. Don't they still have that at awards shows? They 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 hire people to. Okay. Like when the the stars go to the bathroom or something, it's like, oh, it's your job to sit here in their chair. Have empty seats. Can't have an empty theater. (laughs) I mean, for the record, I think I'd be a great seat saver. Like that is a talent (laughs) I definitely have. You're like, where do I sign up for this employment opportunity? Send me a gown. I'm there. Exactly. (laughs) One of the other things about having boxes. Boxes were on display, but there are also little rooms that were connected that were perhaps a little bit more oh. private. And so very scandalous. Oh. And you were in a box with someone and then happened to disappear because goodness knows what could you be doing. Intrigue at the theater. Ripe for drama of all kinds. One of the things that I love about theater is that there are these two sides to it, right? There are the people going to the theater and then there are the people running the theater. So can you tell us a little bit about how people involved in the theater were perceived by theater goers or society during this period? Kind of where did actors, actresses, you know, stage people, where were they in society? So theater was kind of a moral battleground at this time. Even though it was very popular, if you were somebody who was very conservative or very pious, you viewed theater as like morally reprehensible. So it also meant that people who were engaging in theater like could not have that kind of like air of propriety about them simply because they were engaged in theater in the first place. Actresses especially were kind of seen as just like a very thin line away from prostitutes. And it also wasn't uncommon for gentlemen who were, you know, in London for the season to have actresses as their mistress or something like that. Heaven forbid a lady be seen with an actor, you know, the scandal that would abound. But gentlemen would have actress mistresses all the time. That was not uncommon. And occasionally even married them. Most of the time, it was a very like open secret type of thing. And it never actually led into a marriage or a serious relationship. But occasionally they married the actresses who they had been seeing covertly or otherwise throughout the time of the season. But it was a profession for people as well. And depending on, you know, how well known they were, or if they were affiliated with a certain certain theater, or if they were in a traveling company, then it would also depend on kind of where they fell in that social hierarchy as well. So if you're a very poor actor who's going from theater to theater or from town to town, then you are, you know, seen as somebody who's kind of lower, more of the people who are, you know, in service roles or in trades or something like that, but definitely more in line of a servant rather than anybody who's in high society. But there were, similar to how we have movie stars today, There were some actors, especially in those like Theaters Royal in London, that really made a name for themselves. And then they could make incredible amounts of money and then also were sometimes in those upper circles of society. Not necessarily considered genteel, but they at least had access to those circles. They would get invited to the good parties. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I wonder of how often it would be like, oh, my gosh, like, this is a cool attraction. You know, Edmund Keene is here. He came to my right. party. And now it's, you know, something that I get to talk about, but I don't actually view him as an equal. It's just an entertainment or a distraction. So you can be in the room, but you're not of that echelon. Well, I think because, Lauren, you are so good at the pop culture references, this is something that that in Bridgerton, they kind of, in the TV series, especially the first season, they kind of do play with that concept a little bit, right? Of the, of she She's a fantastic yeah. opera singer. But she shows up at a, an event as the entertainment. And so it's kind of like this like very weird 
moment because because he's having a relationship with her outside of this scenario. I don't know. I think I think that's again, it sheds light on those kind of the intricacies of those interactions. Yeah, and I I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking about Bridgerton as I was reading these things about how Anthony is specifically going to, you know, visit his mistress while he's in London, but never ever sees her as an actual prospect, despite the fact that he's clearly attracted to her, both physically and in like an emotional sense as well, because he gets incredibly jealous when she's with anyone else and, you know, esteems her to an extent, but never actually would never actually consider a serious relationship with her, except for, you know, a brief moment of weakness. But spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't seen season one. He has his own season two that we're all talking about now. We've moved on. And I think that that actually, Diane was asking about, you know, what, how, how are they perceived by society? But I think on the flip side of that, there's this entire world that's going on behind those, those curtains. So what's the culture like in the theater, particularly for like actors and crews? This is obviously a profession. Who did we see working in theaters during this time, both on and off the stage? What's that culture like? Yeah. I'm interested in knowing what the demographics are of the people who are working in the theaters, too. So, you know, what social classes are there, but also London was a more multicultural city than people give it credit for looking back. And so, you know, who else, what other identities were there? But the issue is that is because people were very preoccupied with class, but not so much with like describing people's race. Not that it was a non-issue, like clearly there were roles that people of color were kind of placed into because of their skin tone, but that wasn't the defining factor because they conceived of race in a very different way than we do today. So it wasn't really talked about. You're not going to get, you know, a demographic list of like, and there were X number of like black people who worked in this company and X number of whatever, because they truly did not care. Olivia Murphy has a really great article about like whitewashing the Regency that was in a recent like Jane Austen essay collection, which is super fantastic. And she was talking about how, because we don't know what most people in the Regency look like, because we only get portraits of them or any kind of other depiction if they were already rich or famous. For the vast majority of people in Regency area, we have no clue what they look like. But it also means that we can probably assume just based off of the demographics on census data at the time that there were like multicultural companies both in London and outside of London that would be touring, that would be presenting. So it's not impossible to know, imagine or to assume that people from North Africa or who had been in the Caribbean and then come to London through either the triangular slave trade or through other means and had settled in London and earned their freedom and been there, that they also could have been in this company. Because Black people worked as actors, they worked as patricians, they worked as whatever. And there's records of that specifically, but we just don't know specifically what, you know, any given company looks like. But that is one of the things that I find, even though it's not defined, that that possibility is there, that there were the multicultural companies that we probably wouldn't have believed existed, but likely did just because it wasn't something that was as I suppose scandalous as like American sensibilities would have us to believe because they're so much more focused on class than on race. That makes sense when you put it that way, that that what's the thing that they're prioritizing? Obviously it's going to be this class system that they cling to so hard in this period. (laughs) Rigidly so. And this is perhaps neither here nor there, but I just, I personally recently discovered a very, very famous performer, um, a singer. She was Irish-born, performed in in Irish theaters quite a bit. Her name was Rachel Baptiste Crow. And it's the same thing where she's she's just like this sensation. And I have read accounts about her, but then I only recently found that she is a Black artist. 
so I, I love the way that you're defining that because it's, it just, it fits with this anecdotal experience that I just recently had. Yeah. It's exciting to me, especially as, you know, season two of Bridgerton, as we're recording just dropped about a week ago. And so those conversations about, you know, what did London actually look like are being renewed all over again as people either take issue with the fact that Bridgerton is diverse or are saying, you know, I think it's great, but that's not what London actually looked like to have those conversations of, well, that's what we assume, but you know, actual London of the Regency period was a lot more diverse than we sometimes think about just because people default to saying, oh, the race is described, that means that they were white. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I had heard that name come up in my own research. So I think she was most popular in like the 1760s, but I had heard that name. People had referred to her work as a performer. And then you're like, okay, nobody was talking about the fact that she was, she was a black performer. And it's like, okay, Let's just maybe check our assumptions for a second. I love that. Thank you for sharing. That's so cool. Now I want to dig up more information about her. Well, Lauren, is there anything else about Regency Theater during this time? Or just you got some juicy anecdotes for us? Oh, you know what? I actually do. So one of the things going back to like those actresses being mistresses for, you know, the gentlemen and the nobility at the time. So right before the Regency era, the Prince Regent actually had a mistress who was an actress in London at the time. So her name was Mary Robinson. And so he started a relationship with her when he was 17 and she was 21 after seeing her on stage. And they, you know, continued a relationship for quite some time after he sent her multiple letters to convince her to to begin this relationship with him. And then, you know, eventually as the nobility men's eyes do his eyes wandered and he went off to go find someone else and the custom at the time was to kind of make sure that your mistress was taken care of in a way even after the relationship had ended and he chose not to he had told her that he was going to give her twenty thousand pounds but he failed to tell his father king george the third that and he was not about to give her twenty thousand pounds and the prince regent had no money of his own so he ended this and gave her no money and she was not happy And so she blackmailed him successfully and said, I will release all the letters that you wrote to me unless you give me 5,000 pounds. And it worked. (laughs) She got her money. (laughs) That is a gutsy game that she played. I respect that. Take care of yourself. Literally blackmail the crown. Exactly. Like, you got to put yourself first, queen. Get the bag. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, like, nothing about this story. Like, if you know anything about the Prince Regent, you're just kind of like, yeah, that fits. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That's yep. That's (laughs) right. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and just learn about everything that you've got going on? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first, I would definitely recommend that you check out Reclaiming Jane, which is the podcast that I co-host with my best friend, Emily Davis-Hale. We're actually discussing Mansfield Park right now. So if you are really just looking for that home theatricals discussion, we're discovering all the things that Mansfield Park has to offer. We read the books section by section. So we read five chapters at a time and we discuss the historical context of each work and then also throw in lovely pop culture references as well. So probably up the alley of anybody who's already listening to Think About Austin because they have such a similar vibe. So if you want more of that, (laughs) then slide on over to Reclaiming Jane as well. You can find us online at Reclaiming Jane Pod or we're at Reclaiming Jane on most social platforms as well. And then if you are just looking for my particular brand of chaos, which I don't know why, but you're welcome to. (laughs) I'm usually yelling on Twitter at Lauren Weathers because I've got my full name because I've been on Twitter for a hot minute. Okay. So you can find me there too. I'm there all the time. (laughs) 
Well, definitely everybody go check out Reclaiming Jane. It's one of my favorites and it's always so great to listen to you and Emily as you are working your way through the novels together. Thank you. And so this, I, this is such like a mutual appreciation and excitement because like I was so excited to be able to be here. And also, you know, y'all, if you listen to the thing about Austin, they're also on season three, episode one of Reclaiming Jane. So you get both of us together on one episode. <laughs> it was the ultimate crossover event. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for joining us. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our next episode when we'll be talking about Petty France from North Ingarabi. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.